A 90-minute visit last week to one of the world's largest model railway displays in Flemington, New Jersey, got me thinking of the many hours I spent in my basement as a boy, hunched over one miniature or another. It began the way it does for us all, with toys and dolls and teddy bears, all tinier representations of some larger thing. But most people outgrow that, maybe getting into sports or dance, something creative, and most importantly, social. I went the other way. My family returned after nearly four years in Mississauga to the largely French town of Saint-Jean in 1975, just after I turned eight. When we had left Quebec in 1972, my sister had been in French school for a few years and was fluently bilingual. I had yet to leave the house for even kindergarten, and so getting to Mississauga started my schooling in English. It was only upon transferring to Saint-Jean in the middle of my grade three year that I had to take a French course. It's a long story, but the gist of it is... I would much later learn that the textbook I was supposed to learn my French from, as a complete novice in grade three, was the same high-level textbook I saw my French-speaking friends use in grade eight at the big high school an hour's drive away. Our little elementary school was dysfunctional in many ways, but having one elderly lady teaching French to all the grades, one through six, and with... I see now no genuine attempt to correct for at least one student's absolute inability to play catch-up was the main ingredient in the recipe for my failure. It wasn't even until grade seven, four years later, that I was in a low-stream French class in a new, larger school and was taught something I had never heard before. The alphabet. The alphabet in French. And we took it from there. I was still a mediocre student of the language despite living in a French milieu, or perhaps because of it. I say with no little regret that I wish I was completely fluent today, but a combination of things crippled me from the start. I don't put all the blame on that one teacher or that one school, though I look back on any eight-year-old in that situation and, not surprisingly, am sympathetic. But I think maybe a more outgoing boy, one who hungered to interact with others his own age and wanted to explore the world in which he now found himself, would to some degree have just gone and made it happen, mingled and chatted up the neighborhood kids who might well have been welcoming to a new face. But if I was a pretty regular kid in Mississauga, who lived just on this side of the shyness spectrum, being tossed into a foreign language situation pushed me further in that direction. I did join a hockey team for less than one season and played baseball for a few summers, but never felt like I fit in and was relieved when I finally told my dad to not even sign me up. 
I was also a mediocre athlete, surprise, surprise. And this was, too, the late 1970s, when the election of the first sovereignist PQ government created the mass Anglo exodus to points west down the 401, and being an English speaker in Saint-Jean was not seen as a charming novelty. It all conspired to create a young man who kept his head down and his mouth shut, turning ever inward, to the detriment of his secondary language skills. Never was the sadness of this more apparent than at holiday family parties, wherein he could communicate with his unilingual French kin no better than the American-born cousins who came to visit now and then from Michigan and New Jersey. They had a pass, at least. But the locals must have looked at me and wondered what the problem was. He lives here now. Is he retarded? Or does he just hate us? Neither was flattering, and neither was true. The kid who would later realize he might rather drown in a pond rather than call for help also didn't know how to say, I want to talk to you, to share in your jokes, and have you understand me. But I don't know why I'm not getting this. No kidding, it was awful. In my basement, I developed all the tools I would need to exist in another world. I had an old phonograph player and a burgeoning collection of LPs. I had hundreds of military miniatures that I would assemble and paint from the Revolutionary War soldiers to World War II armies and aircraft. But I rarely played with these once they were painted. I might assemble them on the floor or a table as if they were in the midst of a battle, but that was usually the extent of it. Until my dad gave me, I think it was the Christmas of 1980, a very basic Lionel train set. In itself, this is not a toy with a long shelf life. You can put together an oval track, put your engine and caboose and rolling stock on there, and go forward, and reverse, and forward again. Eh. But what I took to was that this wasn't a toy. It was truly a vehicle. It needed to belong somewhere, and it was up to me to create its world. In our furnace room, off the family area that had become more my dad's domain, with my mom upstairs more often, I set up two four-by-eight plywood boards on wooden horses, meeting at a perpendicular angle, creating an L with one long twelve-foot side. My sister's boyfriend was, in fact, an electrician with CN Rail and helped me wire the thing with lights and a better control panel than what had come with it. I would bring home the occasional store-bought kit to assemble of a lumberyard building or a station, but also spent hours designing and building my own structures for the layout, houses and a church, a movie theater and fire hall, a bridge made of matchsticks. My years of painting tanks and soldiers and airplanes had prepared me for all of this, as well as coloring the civilian figurines I had populate the towns. Looking back, of course, I see the trains and track were secondary. I built up a decent little fleet of locomotives and stock and had them pass through town and up into the mountains over bridges and through a tunnel. But now I see what I was up to. I created a little world in which I could spend all of my time until I found a way to get out. One that did not remotely look like where I lived. No store-bought kit came with French signage, and the stop signs here did not say Arrête. 
I was already a big fan of old movies and listened to my dad's old swing records on the phonograph, so it made sense to me to set this in the past. It became a little town in Nova Scotia in the 1930s. Still Canada, but one could hear Benny Goodman and Duke Ellington and speak English here without feeling like a jerk. And there was a Jimmy Stewart movie at the cinema with a Mickey Mouse cartoon and yeah, soda shop and the red 36 Ford Coupe on the main street. It was fantastic. And I outgrew it not too much later, maybe when I started to consider real avenues of escape, like my moped, and then having a friend with his own car. At some point it was all packed into boxes and sits now in my sister's basement, not far from where it was all collected originally. As we drove home from our wedding in New Jersey this week, I told my new wife about the impressive museum setup and my own trains, and I've been saying for years that one day I might want to set it all up again, or give them to my nephew, who is now twelve. But even though he is a single child and lives in an even more isolated part of Saint-Jean than I once did, he is so many of the things that I was not and am not now. He has spoken both French and English from the beginning and throws himself into dance class and martial arts and baseball and guitar lessons and air cadets and is a funny, outgoing kid who goes up to strangers at weddings and loves to give and get hugs. The thought of him spending his time in his basement looking for an escape route is as unnecessary for him as it is sad for me to consider. So I think I'll hang on to those boxes for another time and support him as he continues to get out in the world in ways that astound the shy little kid in me. Pretty Much, Episode 38, The Escape Artist, written and read by Scott Clarkson, music by Garner Firebird.